This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, October 5th, 2020. We go to hell, the town of hell, Michigan, where we speak with the self-elected mayor. A short history of plungers and other things that go plunge in the night. And have governments ever been prepared to protect the privacy of its citizenry during a global pandemic? Not really. That's according to one of our guests. All of this starts now. great day for talk radio every day is a great day for talk radio more or less other days well you know uh, we're all enduring we're all living through our own personal hell as it were but none of us claim to actually be the mayor of said place unless you're john cologne john cologne is the self-professed mayor of hell it's a town in michigan and he's joined us on the line to tell us what's in store john how you keeping we're keeping i i hope you added hell to that michigan <laughs> Michigan is itself a hell. No, listen, uh, where, we're a real town in hell in Michigan. Where exactly in Michigan is hell? Uh, just outside of, I'd say, 18 miles uh, uh, southwest of Ann Arbor. Well, kind of, uh, how do you do south north? I'd go uh, southwest of Ann Arbor, <laughs> northwest of Ann Arbor, right. wherever the hell it is. <laughs> I was going to say. Miles away. You made it real easy to find now. I'm going to be spinning around in every right. direction. Right. That's right. <laughs> uh, that's all right. Uh, directions are hell. But listen, uh, so this town is actually called hell. It's a, a, a legitimate community. It sounds like a college town just outside of Ann Arbor. But how many people in hell? Oh, we have 72. It's uh, made up of hellions, hellbillies, and wannabes. <laughs> And you, the mayor, uh, now, uh, you're uh, not an elected mayor per se. I'm guessing you're self-professed or self-proclaimed, are you? Uh, well, kind of both, uh, in a way. We hold our our, our uh, elections when hell freezes over. <laughs> all, right. all right, every winter there's an election. Uh, listen, well, so- we, maybe sometimes it's, we say it freezes over when the water stops going over the dam. All the, all the water in hell is dammed. okay it's a festival of puns i guess there's a whole lot to be uh, derived from a town called hell who gave the town its name when when john when did it come up with this name hell and who decided on that and for Uh, what reason hell was hell was settled in 1838 by george reese uh george had five kids no reason to call it hell um (laughs) he built a mill in a general store on the banks of a river here and he would grind the local farmer's grain into flour. Um, but he also ran a whiskey still. So a lot of times that first 710 bushels became whiskey or moonshine. And a lot of times horses would come home without riders and wagons without drivers. And somebody would say to the wife, well, where's your husband? And the reply was, oh, he's gone to hell. <laughs> so in 1841, when the state came by and asked George what he was going to name his town, he said, call a hell for all I care. Everybody else does. <laughs> right. So uh, do a lot of people go there in a handbasket? 
uh, we've actually had folks come with little babies in a handbasket, and we, <laughs> we used to have a lot of products where we just had them sitting in handbaskets. Well, that. because of the name, it's a catchy, it's a hook. Uh, you really turn this into, well, uh, leverage for an enterprise. You've got several enterprises, including, I was reading, you got some kind of a special lair you're renting out on Airbnb for Halloween or just yeah. before Halloween. What's that about? Yeah. Well, Airbnb notified us. They, I guess it was last month they were doing a thing where you could spend the night in the last uh, blockbuster video in America. And it was located in uh, Oregon. Yep. And uh, I got a phone call, and um, they want to know if we had any old historical buildings. And I says, we don't, we're not historical, we're hysterical. <laughs> and uh, I described our little wedding chapel. And, uh, God, I think that was like on a Wednesday and Friday, there was a gentleman from St. Louis, a lady from Chicago that flew up and rented the car and came out to visit us. And. Monday, we got the word that they're going to oh, change our little wedding chapel, Hell's Chapel of Love, uh, into a place where people can stay. So they have got three nights in October uh, that they're doing it. And it's amazing to watch them, that they came here with about five, six different people, put this whole, you know, everything out of our chapel, built this beautiful little place to stay, took pictures for a couple days, tore everything down, put our chapel back together, and they'll be back next week uh, to redo everything. Wow. So uh, I, spending a night in hell. What does uh, spending a night in hell cost somebody on Airbnb? Gosh sakes, a whole $31. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> All right, what the hell do you think this is? We're not, we're, we're, you know, we're not big time. Um, but they... Uh, uh, on the 14th of October at noon, uh, will be, it's more like close to, I think, I'm not going to say first come, first serve, because they're going to look at a few of them and figure out. And, and uh, you'll, you know, you can register by going to their site and uh, uh, to spend the night in hell. And I would tell you, if they can hear your radio station, you're probably never going to get it because they because of what's going on in the world today and travel and everything, they are actually looking for folks closer to Michigan. Well, yeah, we're not that far Ontario, you know, uh, we're right. right up against you there, except for that Detroit yeah. river that gets between us and Lake St. Clair and everything, but still we're almost neighbors or cousins. And, uh, we've got yeah. our own version of hell here. <laughs> okay. We're talking to the mayor of hell, John Cologne, John, you know, uh, you almost did, uh, make your way. I won't say to hell, but, uh, into the afterlife, uh, I'm understanding your story was as a Vietnam vet, uh, you got shot up three different times and, uh, we're already being parked for the, uh, dirt nap, weren't you? I was shot three times in one day, uh, uh, actually five times. They didn't count the two in my butt. Uh, <laughs> they just kind of grazed. But uh, anyway, uh, I was uh, ended up being uh, toe-tagged, uh, put in a body bag, and, uh, you know, loaded on a helicopter and uh, taken to the morgue. And... Uh, um, yeah, I could hear people, uh -huh. and, but I couldn't make a noise. I could never figure that out. And uh, 
anyway, long story short, I, I, I ruled off a, a pile of bodies. There was on the 19th of February during Tet Offensive, there was 28 in my platoon and 18 lost their life. Wow. Uh, it was with the 101st Airborne. And uh, so anyway, I was on this pile of bodies and rolled off. And they put me back on and rolled again. And uh, I guess they finally, Doc Lovey, who had pronounced me dead uh, um, for the last seven years, uh, him and I have ridden together. To, uh, he's about 86 now, 87, and uh, we ride together every February to be with those 18 guys at the Vietnam Wall. Oh, dear. Wow. There's a group group of us that go and uh, just spend some time with them. And, uh, so, John, effectively, I mean, you can say uh, you've been to hell and then back to hell. I mean, I know uh, it's probably been pointed out to you, but you you were there uh, conscious in the body bag with the toad tag on, and you could hear voices, but no, you couldn't make a sound yourself. Yeah, I, yeah and, and a lot of times you wonder, you know, I do know a couple times where I know, uh, you know, I could hear things. And it's a strange thing happened. I The second time I rolled off, and, and this always amazed me, a woman in white, it wasn't a flowing, it wasn't a flowing gown, but she had like a white coat on with a silver uh, medallion around her neck. And she held up her hand and said, no, not yet. And I just remember that plain as day. And once I got back to the States, uh, 38 days later, we had a little baby girl. And that little girl grew up. Um, she went on to college. She graduated and went on to med school. And... She sent me the most wonderful letter in the world about, Dad, you know, I know you got kicked out of college and this and that, but you really pushed, you know, education on me and my sister. And she says, here's a picture of me on my first day of my residency. And she's got her hand up in the air, waving like a white coat with a stethoscope, a silver medallion. Wow. I cried like a baby. <laughs> this guy. And I know this is what your program's about, but I'm sorry, I don't know why I even said that to you, but that was something that actually happened. Well, I mean, yeah, if you're shot three times, uh, five, yeah. including the two uh, in the butt, the graze you, but in a body bag with a toe tag, and uh, they've got you written off already, and then yeah, you come and they back. they stop the paperwork. My parents were notified. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It was, it was, wow. That's a joyous occasion. So uh, there was something in the cards that was preordained that uh, you were going to go to hell, but it was going right, to be yeah. a good experience. How about that, eh? It all ends well in that's, the end, and yeah, you was... got your pursuits there, uh, the Airbnb, uh, little Halloween night on the uh, on the town, mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, for 31 yeah. bucks, and all the other attractions, because I know you're a no. big uh, motoring guy, uh, the cars that come out there and do the rallies and all the rest, you got an ice cream shop, and... So you are uh, in charge of your own domain, and good for you. John, I really appreciate uh, checking in with you this afternoon. That was a fascinating account. If I took up time. <laughs> so.
I really no. appreciate all our Canadians. We really miss you. We see so many of them, but uh, you know, travel today is very different than what it was just you know six months ago. Well, we look forward to the time when we can say in a good way, go to hell. Uh, you know what I mean? All right. We say spend some time in hell while you can enjoy it. <laughs> you got it. There you are. John Cologne again. The mayor of hell, Michigan. A real pleasure, John. Stay well. Thank you. Be safe. Bye-bye. And you. Amen. Can we say that in hell? Uh, all right. Well, there you have it. Uh, fascinating account. Just that scary episode. I mean, that uh, the guy cheated the Grim Reaper uh, thrice in that one day. Losing 18 of a platoon of 23. Somebody was looking out for him. Art and how it's being revolutionized uh, with the collaborative effort of artificial intelligence or vice versa. A man uh, collaborates with machine. Joining me on the line is that revolutionary force himself, Alexander Rebin, who is uh, an artist who's working with AI. Alexander, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing pretty well. Hello from uh, California. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us on the line from California. I was reading this fascinating account that art uh, can be, I guess, uh, working in conjunction with AI and produce something that's uh, wholly unique. But uh, tell me about this process, the collaborative factor, our collaborative uh, process that factors in AI and uh, creates original art. How do you come yeah. to uh, to use it, to utilize it, uh, and tell us how it works? Yeah, for sure. So um, there's been a lot of AI art coming out uh, in the past few years. A lot of it has been visual. So, um, for instance, AI would generate images that were then um, used as artwork. Uh, in this case, I use an, an AI which generates text, um, something called GPT-3. Um, and the way it works is you give it some text and it tries to figure out what comes next. So, for example, if you give it, for dinner, I ate some blank uh it would come up with spaghetti, maybe, um, but it probably wouldn't come up with something like shoes because that wouldn't be probable. Um, so if you ask it to come up with something like, say, um, hey, I want this painting contains blank, um, it will start describing what a painting is. Um, so I would feed in those prompts and it would come back with information about what that artwork might contain. Um, I would pick the prompts that I liked the most uh, and then I would keep feeding those back into the system and it would create more and more output until it wholly described an artwork. Um, and then I would go and create that artwork uh, physically. So I would take its description and then turn it into a physical manifestation of that. All right. And so I'm guessing for the most part, this is abstract art. Yeah, so um, at least the art that I chose, but it did describe uh, artworks which aren't. Like, uh, you know, there's a woman sitting by uh, a stream wearing a red hat holding a uh, bouquet of flowers, for example. Um, I didn't choose those outputs because that's not usually the type of artwork that I make. Um, but uh, it can describe artworks from basically any genre uh, because the model was trained on billions of uh, websites and web pages. So it actually knows quite a bit about art and art history. So any genre of art you can think of, um, it can generate a description for that artwork. In effect, the AI would source the glossary of all humankind's art uh, works, archived, I guess. Uh, and so based on the storage, it retrieves that based on your prompts or the text that you feed into it, and then it starts the process going is what you're saying. So the model that this uh, um, AI is trained on, the AI is GPT-3 that was put out by an organization called OpenAI. 
Um, it was trained specifically on web pages and databases. Um, so it knows um, what's in those websites. So it wouldn't necessarily know what's in a book unless that book was online. Um, so its knowledge is contained to a specific subset, but that subset is so huge, so many billions of web pages that it actually knows quite a bit about things. Um, and other people have done really interesting things with it, like generate poetry, um, generate uh, game descriptions, um, and some people even got it to write uh, computer code because it learned how to code from, from reading web pages. You know what's fascinating about all of this, Alex? I look at some of the pieces that have been created. I mean, you're effectively a curator of sorts, aren't you? Yeah, it's a good way to describe it. Um, so I, uh, I curate the outputs that I like, uh, but the decision process in feeding the outputs back in and then getting more output, I'd say, is where the collaboration comes into play. Is it really a true collaboration? I mean, there's a bit of a play on that word. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd say um, curation is a really good way to describe it. Yeah, because uh, it seems like the kind of stuff you might find at the moment, you know, Museum of Modern Art or any uh, contemporary art gallery, and not knowing the genesis of how this all came about, uh, you would ascribe it to the artist. But I'm I'm told as well that uh, some of these uh, depictions, these artistic creations, also come with a story. Uh, it may be fallacious or a fictitious one, but that's what the AI generates as well. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So uh, after I get, say, a paragraph of it describing, um, you know, the physicality of the artwork and what the content is, uh, I then feed that text back in with the prompts, something like uh, an excerpt from an art review said, um, and then the system will take uh, the description of the artwork uh, into play as it generates a review of that artwork or a description of that artwork as well. So it can both generate the artwork itself or a description of the artwork and an analysis of that artwork, which to me is kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> it is. It's the new frontier. Uh, although the machine itself doesn't suffer for its art, does it? <laughs> it's, no, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's, that's up to you. Uh, that's your part of the equation. Where can somebody see this? I mean, is it online? Is there a website where you've uh, posted this so that we can see what the AI and you have generated together? Yeah, so uh, there's uh, my website, which is areben.com, A-R-E-B-E-N, um, or you could just Google my name. Um, right now, it's all virtual, uh, given all the, the gallery closures and museum closures. But uh, yeah, I'm building more of these artworks and uh, yeah, obviously hope to show them uh, in a physical location sometime soon. Great to find out about it. Uh, fascinating. It's a new dimension uh, to obviously the craft of art uh i appreciate alex you're weighing in and uh, again that's uh a-reben.com thanks so much for your time and uh continue creativity thank you very much thanks for having me i did want to talk about tracing and tracking and all the rest because there's a premium being placed on it our own prime minister talked about it earlier today now toronto says they're scaling back on contact tracing only focusing on the highest risk scenarios well there may be a risk to any kind of contact tracing and tracking we're going to find out about that uh, joining me on the line from romania is roxana nasoy privacy advocate and head of strategy at tajan and author of the uh, article leftovers of privacy in the era of covid 19 encryption and cryptography Roxana, nice to have you joining us uh, here on the Oakley Show in Toronto, Canada. Hi there, good afternoon or evening in your case. It's, uh, it's quite late, it's uh, after 10 p.m. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate you coming on. A couple of salient uh, issues I wanted to address. 
Uh, you've written a piece, uh, what we're seeing is a global tendency towards mass surveillance programs, both from authoritarian as well as democratic countries. Governments teaming up with technology providers with little to no regard whatsoever to sensitive, personally identifiable information. Are they exploiting this crisis to uh, really start keeping tabs on us going forward? Well, yeah, I think uh, the tendency is towards uh, mass surveillance. And unfortunately, governments have never been prepared from a technological point of view to understand exactly what they're shoving down our throats in terms of obligatory technology that we should use. Um, And what we've seen, what we've noticed with, with COVID contact tracing apps is that the entire um, e-health uh, workforce and just health healthcare workforce is not encouraging contact tracing. Um, and contact tracing itself is not much of a valid preventive measure. It's more of an, you know, keep me updated in case I'm in an area that has a risk to attach to it. But... The real problem is that globally we see that the healthcare system has failed every single citizen apart from two or three countries internationally that have done well in managing the the virus crisis. Well, all right, uh, before we get to uh, the failure of that, I just wanted to ask you about the contact tracing because we've got the uh, app here in Ontario, I think seven provinces of 10 plus the territories in this country have signed on for this. Uh, already about uh, close to 3 million downloads in the province of Ontario out of a population of 14 million. And it's a Bluetooth technology thing, uh, which you're aware of. Is there something yeah. inappropriate uh, uh, about that? Because it doesn't, we're told, identify the individual user. It's just a case of uh, anonymously, through a third party, through the URL, you would find out if there's anybody in your proximity who has tested positive. Is that not foolproof or at least uh, somewhat protective of people's personal privacy? No, because you rely, first of all, uh, any kind of Bluetooth device has uh, its own uh, vulnerabilities from the manufacturer side. So if you have a phone, and I'm assuming older people don't have like the latest gadget, they'll have phones that are, uh, you know, from before 2018, 2019. Uh, These have built-in vulnerabilities for Bluetooth. That means that even though you are anonymous, it can be exploited by, let's say, a hacker or anyone wanting to steal data from your device. It can send um, corrupted data to your Bluetooth setting, which is kind of disturbing because it raises a whole different question on the, uh, you know, the, the security of the data. Then the other problem is that, so the the, the data collection process itself is not as secure and as private. The storage can be private and secure, but the data collection isn't. Like you're working with Google or Apple, and you're basically exposing the location and the information of that person through the collection processes of the, that person's data. And then the third element is uh, Bluetooth data can be can have a false uh, false positives. That means that it's not just gonna, when you, when you open up your Bluetooth setting, it's gonna have a range of probably 50 meters that can 
can use to to uh, quantify the the data. But that means that any kind of device that is working based on Bluetooth can send information to your Bluetooth device. So sometimes it doesn't really work. It doesn't exactly collect the right data, so to speak. Hmm. Or uh, people are not engaging it fully is one of the complaints that is being made here of uh, all of the positive tests that have taken place only 600 so far have been loaded into the current app uh, that's made available, COVID Alert. That's the app in Ontario, while across Canada now, and the Prime Minister is imploring people to get on board. You know, I'm kind of curious now, Roxana, do you think post-COVID, if we can project that far out, and hopefully sooner than later, this will be the new normal, these kinds of tracing and tracking apps, or is it going to pretty much be grandfathered out with the demise of the pandemic or the uh, hysteria surrounding it? Well, I, I look at things at a, in a different way. It's the, the line that you shouldn't cross. And once you cross that line, which is, you know, you're forcing people or you're pushing agendas for people to install apps so you can track and trace them, uh, what it is to say that this will not move forward in in the next couple of years um we saw what happened in in the u.s with the nsa program we saw internationally we have the best example with china we have examples with other countries and as i said whether democratic or you know uh, authoritarian it is the same issue at the end of the day because you are crossing a line. So um, if the lawmakers and the governments are crossing the line, who is going to put the government in their own place and tell them, you need to stop? It's an interesting question. Let me ask finally, uh, because I know you advocate something called cryptography, not just encryption, uh, because just encrypting data is not enough to solve the privacy concerns that we have with the current COVID-19 solutions. So uh, how is cryptography more of a fail-safe than just encryption? Because cryptography was more of an academic, so to speak, um, um, uh, let's say, Topic, but then it became more popular um, in the late uh, 1980s and the 1990s, and now with with cryptocurrency. But cryptography offers uh, different kinds of encryption. So it's not just one type of encryption, but you can have um, server side encryption. You can have uh, client side encryption. You can have encryption on both ends, end-to-end encryption, so that it just offers uh, additional safety points. And obviously, unless you have the key to access the data, you cannot access the data. So this puts more power into the hands of, of the citizen than into the hands of big tech or government that may be looking to exploit these entry points. These, these central points of failure. So I believe that we can do, um, if we are to build contact tracing apps that really serve uh, the citizen, then we need to look at cryptography as the way to do it. 
in conjunction with the developers, but uh, we should have the ultimate say in this matter, as you point out, uh, 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 rightfully so. Roxanne, I appreciate your weighing in from Romania this evening for you and this afternoon for us. Uh, very good to know these things about, uh, well, Bluetooth in our own instance, because that's certainly uh, a current concern in these parts when it comes to COVID-19 contact tracing. Thank you again. Stay well. Thank you for having me. Bye. Okay. Yep. Roxana Nassoy, again. Uh, she's done a TED Talk on this, and her article is Leftovers of Privacy in the Era of COVID-19 Encryption and Cryptography. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, October 5th, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 